Father God, we come to you this morning and we say to you, Lord, we're all in. Lord, we do not want to be a people who are half-hearted. We do not want to be a people who, when you return, Jesus, we're surprised. And we're doing things that have really nothing to do with you. Lord, we want to be people who live for your glory day in and day out. We want to be people who wholly give ourselves to you. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning, as we understand more of who you are and this great marriage, which is way better than any marriage between a man and a woman or any other kind of marriage, I thank you, God, that you've invited us all into it, that you've made a great proposal. And that, Lord, we can enter into an everlasting union between us and Christ. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would capture our hearts with the glory of our groom. We love you, God. We need you desperately. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so this is the one flesh passage. And uh, before you switch off, if you're not married, I I want to assure you that this is way more than how it is normally understood in Scotland today. It's about much more than meeting individual wants and needs, because I think that is often how we view marriage. And that is not at the heart of marriage at all. In fact, it's about a union of people who were once far from God, united to God in Christ. A friend of mine was uh, in Mauritania uh, a few weeks ago, which is an African country somewhere in the, in the northwest, about five million people, and he was there supporting a charity that raises up indigenous leaders to lead churches that are born as the gospel advances across that country. And I love it because it's not about the Westerner going in as the Savior. No, no. We, we say, hey, this is all about Jesus. And then we encourage people who have received the gospel, who have received this good news about Jesus, to then lead churches and see them multiply and give their all in that country um, for God's glory. So he's there. He's doing that. He's teaching pastors. So he's not there uh, kind of evangelizing and then disappearing. He's teaching pastors so they can do that. And he gets talking to one of the guys who regularly comes out um, to be a part uh, of this charity in Mauritania. And what the guy says to him is, we are having to deal with the legacy of the previous generation where Westerners came into the country, spoke about Jesus, evangelized, and then left. And actually what they did was they left leaving these people not only with an idea of who Jesus is so they can then apply it in their context, they would leave them with a Western idea of Christianity. And what Mauritanians are really good at is community. But when they became Christians through these guys, what happened? They learned to be individuals. They, they lost something of the glory of 
imaging God in community. So become Christians and they lost something of that. How wrong is that? And actually we need to respond to this because I think it's still at the heart of much of what we do as a church in the West today. Individualitis is what Matt Hosier calls it, my previous pastor, and it's seeped into the church. We talk about it from the front as if it's out there, not in here. That's just wrong. It's in here too, and we need to do something about it. The West is ravaged with this individualitis. Faith is seen as a private matter. Isn't, isn't that what you hear all the time? Uh, the number of people I've tried to speak to about Jesus is, oh, no, no, that's a private matter. No, it's not. The Bible never says that. It seems to me that the Bible time and time again repeats to us that this is actually a community endeavor. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. And we are now in verse 18. And I will read through to verse 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib who had ta- uh, he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So the first thing I want us to see is that marriage is more than our needs. Verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. We live in a me culture. And it is far, has far more serious consequences than feeling the judgment of individuals. I think sometimes that's how we kind of view it. We see, that, oh, well, uh, this, this is hard, this whole individualitis thing, because uh, people are constantly judging each other as individuals. I think it's much more than that. It's a much more serious problem than that. This isn't just some sort of cultural thing that's going on that we should be slightly concerned about. This is ravaging our society. The Scottish Household Survey in 2018 showed that a fifth of adults had experienced loneliness within the last week. In this great city of ours, over two-thirds of Glaswegians have experienced loneliness in their lifetime. That is not good enough. It's a repercussion of our society um, moving away from biblical values and embracing individualism. We need to think back to chapter 1, verse 26, to 
try and understand this a little bit more, give us some context. There, God uses the word our. He said, let us make man in our own image. And it wasn't a slip of the tongue. It wasn't some sort of awkward Hebrew translation that we're getting wrong. No, it is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created man in his own image, in their own image, our. So what do we take from that? Well, we take that we were made by community for community. So to be image bearers, we cannot live lives in isolation, but we need to face life with others in all of its ups and downs. So then when we read here, it is not good for man to be alone. It is not simply that Adam needed a wife to procreate or even to enjoy the gift of marriage. It was about community, life-giving community. Marriage on its own is not enough. A married couple who live together in unity, but then do not mix with the wider community— who kind of keep themselves to themselves, kind of hermits, but together, they just become an isolated pair, not isolated individuals. It's not healthy. It's not good for us. So marriage is about more than marriage is part of the answer to this Adam being alone problem. But it's only the beginning. So if you're thinking, I'm single, I feel called to celibacy, wherever you're at this morning, hear this, there is a greater marriage, which I'm about to talk about later, but also this problem isn't just answered by the institution of marriage, it's answered by the wider community. We're supposed to live in community. In verse 19, God essentially gives Adam a parade of animals, doesn't he? So you've got these animals that come by, and he names them all, and he's essentially saying, well, what do you think, Adam? And Adam is supposed to say, and thankfully does say, no thank you, no thank you, no thank you. Then finally, here she is. After he's been put to sleep, he wakes up, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, same of my same. We are made for each other. We are made to walk side by side. That's why when God put Adam to sleep, he creates Eve out of his side. Do you notice that? Doesn't create Eve out of his head, as if she goes ahead of him. Doesn't create Eve out of his back, as if she goes behind him, but creates Eve out of his side. So if you're married, your, your wife belongs by your side. Your husband belongs by your side. You're supposed to now face life as a team, side, of, side by side, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh team. At every level, we become wholeheartedly devoted to each other in marriage. It's easy to live your own separate lives these days, though, isn't it? It's easy as married couples to kind of just do your own thing, see each other in the evenings, maybe for an hour or so, 
Otherwise, you essentially live your own life. You could even have your own hobbies and bank accounts and barely see each other. But is that really what it means to become one flesh? I think what it means to become one flesh is, is that we are to have one life fully shared. One fleshy, real life, no longer two me's, but one us. Two people wholly committed to pay the price that is required to go from my life to our life. It is to think of your marriage partner as one unified life. Bank accounts to beds. Jesus said, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Matthew 9, 6. So, that means, no matter the, the poor decisions you made as a young man or a young woman, it is God's will for you to now be married to whoever you have married. Unless there's abuse involved or something very serious like that, then God wants you to be married. It's a God-given marriage, and you cannot view it any other way. This isn't a product of kind of some sort of human social evolution. We realize this is the best thing for us so that we can really advance as we want to advance. It's God's. He defines it, and it is by his love for his people. In verse 24, Moses says, A man shall leave his father and his mother. This one's an interesting one in our generation. Generation of prolonged adolescence. It is a a rite of passage for a boy to become a man, and it is being increasingly blurred and extended for young men in Scotland today. Men are supposed to leave their primary, dependent human relationship with the family that they grew up in, go out from the household of their parents, and then establish a household that would, for a prospective wife, be a place they want to go and feel safe and protected and loved and enjoyed. First, though, he has to take responsibility for himself. He's got to break away from his family for the potential of a loyalty that runs much deeper and means more than any other human relationship. Some of you in this room are in your 20s, and you do not think of yourself as a man but a boy. You didn't leave home to take on responsibility, you left home to play more. Play more computer games, be the fun, chilled out kind of guy that everyone loves. But you have no idea how to lead and love like Jesus. When you watch porn, when you let your eyes wander, when you let things go too far with someone, or you join in with the rating and the objectifying of women that goes on 
you are doing much more than being a little bit of a naughty boy. It's not innocent. You are degrading God's image. You are ripping apart your own flesh. You are denying the glory of the greater and ultimate marriage that we're going to talk about in a minute. It will damage your relationship with your wife, your future wife, and the the way that you interact with women full stop. Men in the church must be different from the rest of the world. Now, I know that there are some complexities in there, so I'm not giving us rules about when you need to leave home and all that kind of thing, but we need to be thinking about how do we take on responsibility as young men? How do we become Christ-like in the way that we love and serve people? You are forming habits right now, if you're young, 20-something, maybe your late teens, forming habits right now that will make you either a perpetually weak man or a man of God like you've been made to be. If you want to be a good husband, good father, today or in the future, you need to learn to die for your future wife, your future kids, and to the people that you serve right now. We need to lay down our individual wants and needs, not use marriage as another vehicle in which to be satisfied. There are young men in our culture who, particularly in Christian culture, who are acting like boys, but still looking around to see you or looking around churches, trying to eye up young women made in the image of God when they're not ready. And it's going to ruin your life and it's going to ruin their life unless you get it together. But that's what Jesus has actually done for you. So I don't want you to now stay there in guilt. The way out of this is not your own works, but through Christ, you can find a way to be Christ-like. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 when he says, We are members of Christ's body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's he saying? That we are part of Christ's body because he loved us and chose us as the greatest husband. He's saying that Jesus came to give himself up for us, to be the ultimate servant, to be the ultimate husband. The greatest reason to get married is because the marriage of, that you enter into should be a marriage that tells the whole human story, that ultimately there is a glorious romance from above, that God loves you so much that he'd be willing to come and lay his life down for you and give you a love and a promise beyond any love or promise that you could ever even begin to imagine. It's an Anglican minister called Christopher Ash, and uh, he says this. 
it's too easy for Christians to think of marriage as a discipleship-free zone. Outside of marriage, we love to talk about sacrifice, taking up our cross, and so on. But inside marriage, we often talk about how to communicate better, how to be more intimate, how to have better sex, how to be happy. If a marriage isn't serving God, no amount of personal and sexual fulfillment will make it right. In other words, it's not about you. It's about God. What good marriages really point to is a marriage that is not just about two people. It's way better than hoping in some kind of big wedding, 2.4 children, nice garden, golden retriever. It's about Jesus and his church. You can put your hope in an everlasting union with Jesus, the perfect husband. And it is only when we see that that then we can say to everyone in this room, whether you are single for life or not, that there is great joy in marriage, that marriage is to be sanctified that marriage is to be kept holy, that marriage is good and it is from God. That gives us the foundation for talking about marriage. And we don't talk about marriage as only between one man and one woman. We believe that for us, but the marriage between one man and one woman points to a much greater marriage that we're all involved with. The church is Christ's bride, and it is the church that is the antidote to isolation, the antidote to loneliness, the antidote to individualism and consumerism. It's committing to Christ and his people above and beyond your own wants and needs that will see these things dissipate in our, our lives and in our realities. So to really live as a church in this day and age, to really be the bride of Christ, is increasingly radical. That's why Paul said to the men in Ephesus, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's radical. It's about Jesus. It is only because there is a better marriage, a marriage that all marriages are supposed to point to, that means we can say to people, Your hope is not in your heart's desire for a spouse. So if you're here today and you're thinking, man, it just feels like in the church it's all about being married. Can I just put that one to bed for you? Like, that is not the hope and the dream. How many youth groups have people been through where all you talked about was relationships and all you talked about how you should, was how you should save yourself for marriage? I agree with those things, but I only agree with them because you love Christ because his marriage is better. And we're all involved in that marriage. This glorious union between Jesus and his people that will last forever. That's the marriage that we need to talk about. We've got to deny individualism to be united to God and his church through Christ. Second thing I want to say is this. Marriage is nothing less than God's desire. It's extraordinary 
that marriage in the Bible is defined by a greater marriage between God and his people, between Christ and his people. And it's extraordinary because we're not a dazzling prospect. Did you know that? We, we are not the pick of the bunch. We are not irresistibly attractive to God. That is not our starting point. In verse 25, Adam and Eve were naked and without shame. By the end of chapter 3, they hid from God and felt shameful. They became aware of the ugliness of this sin that had so horribly invaded. They realized that they are all like the unfaithful bride. That's what the seemingly bizarre book of Hosea is about. Have you read that one? Hosea has a broken marriage to a woman called Gomer. She has three kids with him. And it turns out that she's been sleeping around. And she's ended up in great debt to her lovers. She runs off in disgrace. Covered in the shame of her sin, her rejection from society. And she's in debt. She's ruined her life. She's ruined her kids' lives. And she's ruined Hosea's life. And so what might you expect God to say to Hosea? He'd been faithful, unlike Gomer. Probably not this, which is what he does say. Go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And so Hosea bought her for a price. He said to her, you are to live with me many days. Pays the price, forgives her, brings her into her side. Does that remind you of anyone? I love communion. You may have noticed, we do it every week. We respond to the gospel and the Bible's command to do it regularly. So every Sunday, we do communion. Now, the main thrust is about Passover, about how Jesus is our Passover lamb. But there's something else that is just glorious that runs through that story of, and actually is happening at the Last Supper. When a man in that context was to be married... He went to his proposed father-in-law with gifts. A good father would then go to his daughter and say, well, he's offered us this. What do you think? Do you want to marry him? Shall I release you from my care so you can go and be married to this man bearing gifts? And so when Jesus says, this is the blood of my covenant, take and drink it. When he said that to his disciples, what's he saying? He's saying that I am willing to pay for you by my own blood. And he's saying, by my covenant, my promise, I am offering you a promise of marriage. He's proposing He was proposing to the disciples and the world, you are the one bought with a price, the price of his blood. Now, if the man got a yes, 
he was to leave his father and mother, like we see in Genesis, to prepare a home on his own family's land. That's how it worked. And so he would spend that, that kind of uh, time of betrothal building a home for her, getting ready for her to come and, and live with him, getting ready to become one flesh. And isn't that exactly what Jesus says he is doing? He goes to his father's house to prepare many rooms. John 14, 2, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Unlike our marriages to one another, the marriage of Jesus and his church is eternal. Not till death do us part, but come into my Father's house forever. That's the proposal. That's why Revelation ends the story of the Bible with a marriage and a great celebration banquet. So here we have it in the beginning, and here we have it in the end. The voice of the great multitude cried out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. You, who think you are never good enough and feel the shame of your sin, are now white, white, whiter than white. There is no blemish on you because of what Jesus has done. His blood has paid the price and he's welcomed you into his side. And you know what? If there is something today that is telling you, I, I, I'm distant from that side of Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm not close to him. It's a lie. It's a lie. Because Jesus has done the work. You were like Gomer, but now you have been pulled in to the side of the great husband. You have a new identity, the bride of Christ, gloriously dressed in white. Do you feel as though you need to earn approval? Do you ever feel like that? Do you find yourself second-guessing your actions all the time? Do you feel sometimes like you come to church and you're not really sure that you can give yourself into worship because you haven't done enough to justify being close with God? Do you find yourself feeling indifferent and distant towards God because of the way that you've been, the way that you've behaved. All of that is lies. All of it. What Jesus has done for you is a once and for all sacrifice so that you can be his bride forever. God no longer sees you 
like you see you. And it's about time that you caught up. This is a gospel of grace, not of works. I'll never forget the day that Lindsay walked down the aisle and I was waiting at the end. As Laond played, man, just this wave of emotion came over me. Tears running down my face. I just couldn't believe I was getting to marry this incredible woman. I'll never forget it. She walked towards a life of intimacy with me. (laughs) Why would she want to do that? (laughs) Some of you are asking that question as well. Some of you still don't realize Jesus is looking at you with much more delight and love than even that. And do you know what? Jesus doesn't stop thinking that way about you. He doesn't have an off day. He doesn't have a day where he's just indifferent towards you, like your husband, I hate to say, will. He always feels like that about you. A pastor tells a story of a couple he was counseling. And it turned out that um, the woman was struggling with intimacy uh, in the bedroom. And the reason she was, was because she'd been abused in her own bed for years by her dad. Horrible, horrible moment. She's just feeling like so much shame as she tells this. And um, the husband is, is, is silent as she explains. He's never heard this before. And uh, the man walks out walks away while she's left there in tears. So the pastor's thinking, oh man, what is going on? Like, I need to get this guy back in the room. Like, we need to sort this out. Half an hour later, he turns back, he turns up again. And he's been out of the shops and he's come back in and he's got a white sheet. And he unwraps this white sheet, brand new, crisp, no marks on it at all. And he wraps it around her. Says you're whiter than snow. I do not see you that way. What Jesus has done for you has taken away all that man did to you. It's a new start. You're white as snow. That's what Jesus has done for us. He's wrapped us in a white sheet. Some of you think that you're, you're only 80% white. That the sheet around you is only 80% white. It's just a lie. It's 100%. Jesus didn't fill you one bit. So we're going to come forward now to take communion and approach this altar-like table to take communion. And I want us to see this a little bit like we're coming down the aisle. We're we're coming to receive from the groom who has paid the great price, who has offered us forgiveness from our sins, 
and he's wiped it all away. You might be that young man, you're thinking, ah, I need to step up in terms of responsibility. From this moment on, you can do that through the power of Christ. You are seen as Christ-like in his eyes. So now, by the power of the Spirit, come to the table. Receive forgiveness and go again. You might be somebody who's been abused. Jesus hasn't just forgiven you of your sins. He's removed the sins that affect you from you. They're gone. So come and receive from him. Some of you are just feeling like, I don't really get this grace thing because I still feel like I need to work harder to prove myself. Jesus would say to you, it's done. It's finished. Come to my table. Zephaniah and 1 Peter say that he exalts over you. So let's, why don't we get on our feet? And as we come forward, I'd love us to do something that you might find a little odd. So we're doing this in community, right? When you go forward, just whoever's there, just grab hold of them and just say to them, God exalts over you. That's all I want you to do. God exalts over you. Can we have a practice? So, you've grabbed me, and you're going to say? Brilliant. God exalts over you. God exalts over you. So, um, we're going to do this without music, okay? Um, so, I know that's weird, right? Why would we do it without music? What? We're going to do it without music. We're going to do it a bit differently today. Um, probably about halfway through the band, we'll get up and um, lead us in worship. Uh, but to begin with, we're going to do it without music. It's going to let the band kind of join in with what we're doing as well. So, band, if you guys go first, that'd be great. Um, and then let's all come around the table. Use every part of the table. Get around the table. Share together. Lord God, thank you for this glorious truth that we are exalted over because of what you have done, Jesus. Thank you that you paid the great price for us to enter in to a marriage with you as the church, as your bride. So Lord, I pray that we would come now and and know that you're looking at us almost as if you are at the end of the altar. We're coming towards you and you're, you're exalting over us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.